soars above the pinion pines And we know these horses stand for something That is precious and more rare Than all the silver and the gold from them old mines So let them run Let them run Let them wild ponies run Don't you brand them, don't you break them Don't you let the killers take a single one Let them run Hi, welcome to Horse Sense 101. I'm your host, Joe Jones, Vale, Oregon's resident redneck and owner of Joe Jones Performance Horses. Horse Sense 101 is a podcast dedicated to helping you have a meaningful relationship with your horse and for them to be a willing partner in all your adventures. The podcast is available every Monday morning at 6 a.m. Mountain Time, wherever you find your favorite podcast. Don't forget to join us on our Facebook group, Horse Sense 101. You can find the podcast link, calendar, and news about our upcoming events on our webpage, www.horse-sense101.com and sign up for our newsletter there as well. And if you have a moment and are so inclined, please leave a review on Podchaser. It's free and I would really appreciate it. This week we are talking with Mr. Ken McNabb, award-winning star of RFD TV's Discovering the Horseman Within and owner of the Diamond McNabb branch in Lavelle, Wyoming. A true American cowboy with boyish enthusiasm for life and strong family values, Ken McNabb grew up in a traditional ranching family in the mountains of Wyoming. This modern-day Roy Rogers knew from a young age that he wanted to help others gain knowledge and confidence to achieve a new level of horsemanship. Ken creates a unique environment where each horse is trained using gentle methods and the rider is coached to become their personal best. Ken's faith in Christ, along with his commitment to strong family values and patriotism, help make him the kind of speaker and trainer we all enjoy. Ken, welcome to Horse Sense 101. Oh, no problem. Thank you guys for the invite. Looks like you're in the track headed for somewhere. I am. I am. I'm pulled over right now, parked, but yep, yep. I'm I'm headed to Billings for another appointment on my leg. Oh, well, I, I guess that's good, right? It is. It should be. I'm walking in my own shoes, so I think this is my last appointment. Tell us a little bit about, you know, you grew up on a on a ranch in Wyoming. I, I grew up on a ranch, and I I knew what it was like for me, but um, I, I'd love to know a little bit about what it was like growing up on a ranch in Wyoming for you. Okay, sure. So that's a little bit of a misconception, uh, because I actually, my parents didn't own a ranch. Uh, what they did is my parents ran a boarding school for troubled kids. And so when I was really young, that boarding school sat in the middle of a large ranch and we were involved in day-to-day operations. And then when I was five, we moved to a little community 80 miles west of there. And when I say a community, I'm talking about you could step out of dad's house and shoot a gun any direction and not hit anybody. Uh, but in the general area that was 20 by 20 miles square, there was a group of people that lived there. And almost all of them were ranchers or farmers of one sort or another. And so at a very young age, uh, I apprenticed myself to a local rancher 
uh, and actually dad helped me do it. Uh, dad took me down and, and told him, he said, Brad, uh, my brother and I, he said, these boys are going to be working for you from now on. And, uh, Brad said, well, I'd love to have them, but I can't afford to pay them. And dad said, Oh, he said, I'm sorry. You misunderstood me. These boys aren't worth paying. They don't know anything worth paying. And, uh, at that point in our lives, we'd been horseback our whole lives. I'd never not been horseback. Uh, and we'd work cattle a lot. And like I said, I started out very young on a, on a big ranch. And so, um, I kind of thought we had some knowledge, but we spent every day of junior high and high school, uh, working for Brad Ferguson. And, uh, we were there holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, cows have to eat. Doesn't matter if it's Sunday or Christmas, cows still eat. Uh, and so we learned a ton and the whole time we were there, uh, we were never paid. And eventually I came to a point where I realized I need some income. And so I started training horses uh, for the outside public. And that's really what prompted my whole journey into horsemanship uh, was the fact that I had things I wanted to do and I, I wanted to own a ranch. And I knew if I wanted to do that, I needed to have some source of income to make that happen. And so I started even then while we were working uh, for Ferguson's, I started even then training horses so that I would have that source of income. So that was all through junior high and high school. And then my senior year in high school, uh, they filed bankruptcy. And uh, as any good teenager knows, uh, if a guy that's been doing it his whole life fails at it, certainly a teenager should know how to fix that. And so my brother and I leased back their ranch from the bank and um, continued running their place uh, for another couple of years before the bank managed to sell it. Uh, and by that time, I was ready to hit the road and, and uh, start putting on clinics. And so that really uh, took me kind of from childhood all the way through. Now, growing up agriculturally based uh, in the middle of nowhere, you know, I, I often hear people talk about, oh, I'd never go back to being a teenager or I'd never go back to this age. I'd go back to any stage in my childhood. Uh, I was very, very blessed kid. Um, dad was home 363 nights a year. Uh, we were a big family, but we were a family and we were horseback and playing games and having fun. Uh, you know, honestly, we had a very ideal childhood, which helped us quite a bit. If you go back even into my uh, grade school years, we had a neighbor, Don Ulrich, and Don raised Foundation Appaloosas. Uh, at that time, he had a slogan, we breed the best to the best. And every month in the Appaloosa Journal, he had a two-page full-color ad. Uh, and when he passed away in 1989, they did a big... Uh, uh, article on him in the Appaloosa Journal. He had shipped horses all over. Uh, so in my grade school years, I actually worked for him. Uh, every fall, my sister and I would go over and halter break all the weanlings starting when I was nine. Uh, and they had a big, they had a, uh, a big long alleyway. They had a solid square pen that was about a hundred by a hundred foot square. And it was made out of upright railroad ties. And then along one wall was an alleyway. And we would fill that all that alleyway with weanling colts. And he would have weaned them a couple of weeks earlier. And we would run them in. 
that alleyway and then walk down a catwalk and fish halters and lead ropes on all of them. And at the end of the alleyway, it swung, the gate swung either back into the pen or out into a little field about five acres. And we would dump them out on that five acre field. And he, they had a fairly sizable ranch, but he would save that five acres just for the halter breaking segment. And those babies would live out there for a few days till we had everything haltered. And then we'd run them back in. And really, I don't know, at eight or nine years old, I'd never let my kids do this. But we'd run them back in, and uh, my sister and I would just walk into that pen and pick up a lead rope and hang on. And in a little while, we'd have that cold halter broke and be petting on them. <laughs> we'd go get another one. And uh, Don, was, Don was like our grandpa. Our grandparents all lived far away. And um, he was like our grandpa. And so he would pay us each year. We would start as two-year-olds and then he would pay us each year with a colt that he couldn't sell for one reason or another. We'd get anything from a yearling to a three-year-old that hadn't sold. Maybe it was a bay, maybe it was a few spot. And of course, back then they didn't realize that the few spots were homozygous to throw color. So he weeded them out. So we rode lots of white or mostly white horses growing up. And um, that, that really uh, really helped establish, uh, my timing and feel because how we didn't get our heads kicked in, I'll never right. know, uh, getting drugged around with 70 of those Colts. But those were the experiences that we had. And we did that every year, every year we did that for years until I went to work for Ferguson's about the time that Mr. Ulrich passed away. Uh, so we just, we rode and played and roped, uh, you know, and when we went to work for Brad Ferguson, no two cowboys could ever ask for a better job. What he did was buy short-term cows and problem cows and straighten them out and then uh, calve them and ship them. And um, so we roped almost every day out in the pasture. We roped and doctored. And so it was just all in all, it was a great experience. So when did, um, when did you decide you wanted to be a teacher? So that was a really great experience as well. Um, for a short time, what I really wanted to do is ride saddle bronc horses for a very short time. And um, Ty Murray is a few years older than I am, and he was turning the world upside down, uh, you know, at the NFR and at 18 years old. And I just thought, wow, I've really got to get in on the bandwagon here and get going. And so... Um, I wanted to ride saddle bronc horses. And so dad uh, told me he thought that was a really good idea. And I should start doing that just as soon as I was living on my own and my own home pay and my own health insurance, but not until. And so I started taking a bronchier type of horses in and working bronchier colts, hoping to get all the practice riding bucking horses I could ever need, which of course, at that time, nobody could have told me it's not at all the same. There's nothing. All you learn, all you learn on ranch colts that buck with you is bad habits. Uh, so anyways, uh, dad then come to me one afternoon and he said, Hey, has it ever occurred to you that all the guys who do what you do for a living are crippled at some point during the year and they all drive vehicles older than they are. And his timing was perfect. Uh, at that time, one of my heroes was a, a local guy named Randy Tolman. Randy was a great roper, super good cowboy, tough as anything. And, um, he was walking around with a full length cast on crutches, driving a pickup that was new probably the year he was born. 
And so it, it really hit home with me. And dad said, look, if you're going to do this, I want you to learn to do it right. Let's, let's not go through life half-baked. Let's learn to do it right. And so another gentleman by the name of Hank Sifford had given me a pirated copy of John Lyon's video, uh, Round Pen Reasoning. And so uh, I had watched that and used it and learned from it. And so dad said, pick somebody you want to learn from. And so I had, I had adopted that video, I really liked it. So I called his office and uh, didn't tell him my age, just called and said, I wanted to come to a clinic. And so they set it up. Uh, they took my registration. And in January of that year, uh, at 15 years old, I flew to Greenville, South Carolina and went to the Clemson University and attended a clinic. And I walked in and he used to do those symposiums to start on a Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, and then a clinic Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I walked in on a Saturday morning and sat down. And in 15 minutes, I knew that I was seeing what I wanted to do the rest of my life. Because at that point in my life, my parents, as I said, ran a nonprofit ministry uh, helping delinquent teens. And that's what they did their whole lives. It's what they still do. And um, so and it was a very much hands-on program. All the kids lived in the house with us. I had a roommate from the time I was seven until I graduated high school. Uh, I, I never didn't have a roommate. Uh, so, you know, we lived as a big family. So helping people was a big part of who I am. And, and I knew it was going to be a part of who I would be my whole life. Um, and I loved it. I loved the experience. But I also really wanted to be involved with horses. I loved horses. I don't remember learning to love horses. I don't remember the first day I loved horses, that's been a lifelong endeavor. I've never in my life been without them. Uh, so when I walked into that symposium and I sat down on the top, uh, top uh, concrete row, about halfway down the arena, and I watched in 15 minutes, I knew what I was going to do the rest of my life. Because what I saw was someone who was able to help people both in their walk with God and with their horses at the same time. And those were the two things that were most important to me. And so I made up my mind that day, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. And I've never wavered. I'm not saying I've never had a bad day where I thought, gee, I should work at McDonald's. Of course, I've had lots of those. And those, those horses keep us humble, don't they? They do. They do. That, that is, God created them just for that purpose sometimes, I think. That's, that's what I believe. Um, talk to me. I, I, I have a, another really, really close friend that that I know his walk with God guides his walk with horses. Um, talk a little bit more about that in your case, because I, I know you are truly, you don't just talk the talk, you walk the walk. Um, talk, talk a little bit about how your, your relationship with, with the Lord um, guides your horsemanship and, and your relationship with your horses. So uh, I'm going to say 22 years ago, February, I was doing a show in Boise and uh, they used to have that little garden city horse expo right downtown. Sabrina Leonard put it on. I, and I was there for years uh, every year in, in February on uh, Valentine's day, we were there. And um, Kurt, my oldest boy was a baby. John Lyons was there at the time. And so I must've been 25 years old and uh I was talking to John at lunch and he said, come with me. I want to share something with you. And in the corner of the main arena uh, in that auditorium upstairs, they had just a little loft 
and they reserved it for clinicians to walk up there and have sandwiches and whatnot and be able to kind of get away from the crowd for a few minutes. And so we walked up there and it was just him and I, and, and we sat down he said, I want to read you a letter. And he pulled out a letter and the letter was from a woman thanking him for his walk with God and for his inspiration in her life to walk closer with God. And so he read me the letter and when he finished, he kind of paused and I said, that's what it's all about, right? John, that's why we're here. That's why we're doing that. He said, yeah. And I said, if you ever see me not doing that, let me know. I would hate to disappoint you. And he paused and he looked at me kind of funny. And he said, think about how much that would disappoint God. And I can tell you at that moment in my life, I had never thought of disappointing God in that manner. I had thought of sin as what cast you into hell. I had thought of God as a being who judged you for your sin or cared for you regardless of and forgave you regardless of. But I had never thought in the terms of a relationship, much like an earthly parent, where you would actually disappoint them and, and cause them to be hurt by your actions. And it changed my world forever. Because I'm not, unfortunately, I know for a fact I've disappointed him many times. I know that. And I'm thankful for the fact that he forgives us for it. But when I work a horse now, I ask myself, am I going to regret this in any manner? Am I, if, if God asked me about today, am I going to feel bad when I have to answer for what happened? For what I did with his, his creation? Am I going to have to make excuses for why I treated this person and their horse this way. And so that has, that has been a catalyst for me from that time on. I, I've just tried really hard uh, to focus on that. I was in um, Ellensburg, Washington, doing a clinic. And I had a lady come up to me afterwards and she was pretty upset. And she had a bit of a different accent. It took me a minute to figure out what the accent was. And so she said to me, I don't think you care whether people learn in your clinics or not. And I was really taken back. I said, no, ma'am, it's very important to me. People learning is why I do this. She said, I don't think so. I said, what makes you say that? She said, because if you cared, you would yell at people. And by then I had recognized her voice. And I said, um, you're from Germany, right? And she said, yes, I am. And I said, well, ma'am, this is America, and we don't treat people that way. We don't yell at people in anger just so that they will learn something. What we try to do is teach them. And she was frustrated. She made a few more comments. And so then I said to her, I said, ma'am, if you were driving down the highway and you saw a horse and a rider drowning in a lake, which one would you save? She said, obviously the horse. The rider's the idiot that put him there. And I said, ma'am, that's where we differ and we can never come together on this because I'm going to save the rider because ultimately his soul is more important. But, but secondly, once I've saved the rider, he and I can work together to save the horse. And that's what I think horsemanship is all about as a teacher and as an instructor. My first responsibility is to God's ultimate creation mirroring himself. My, my first responsibility is to the owner, rider, trainer, handler. My second responsibility is to that horse. And I've 
from that day at 25 years old on, I've tried to never forget that. I don't want to disappoint God in what I'm doing. So I ask myself those questions. I'd love to say daily, but I know it's not daily when I'm working horses, but very, very frequently I stop and ask myself if I had to answer to God for what I'm doing right now, would I have to make excuses? That that's, that's awesome, Ken. And, and, you know, as a fan, that that's why everybody is so grab is so gravitated to you. Um, and it's one of the things that we love the most about what you do is it shows from the outside, it shows in everything you do. Um, and it's so appreciated. I, I just wanted to, I'm, I'm honored to be able to say that. Um, I'm sure you don't hear it enough. Thank you. It's always an encouragement to hear it. Um, and along those, along the lines of adversity, I, I know recently uh, you suffered a pretty traumatic accident. Um, and, and, you know, let people kind of know what happened if you would. And, and more importantly, maybe some of the life lessons that that's helped you at least help reinforce for you. Yeah. Oh man, that's right on the topic we're talking on. So, uh, and, and I, on August 27th, I guess you have to go back before that August 25th, I took a group of uh, students on a trail ride. And there's a man that helps me for, has helped me for the last couple of years. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, he's not necessarily one of the world's greatest horsemen. He's learning and wanting to learn. And so he comes out from, the, from back east and volunteers to help me if I will help him. And so he runs errands. And, you know, if I need something from the feed store or whatever, he goes and does that. And so he was with us and we stopped for lunch on a group trail ride. And he came up to me and uh, I told everybody there's lots of trees around. I told everybody how to tie their horses and I hobbled mine <clears throat> and he came up to me and he said, uh, Ken, do you mind if I turn my horse loose? And I, I wish now that I would have taken a moment to really think about that answer and, and really uh, help him a little bit in that situation. And I didn't, I just said, yeah, sure. But keep an eye on him. I said, I think it'll be okay. But keep an eye on him. Well, everybody got eating and laughing and joking and having a good time at lunch. And I didn't keep an eye on his horse. I, my job was to keep uh, people entertained. And that's what I did. But um, I should have kept a closer eye on things. When lunch was over and we got ready to leave, we suddenly discovered his horse was missing. Now, what makes one gelding leave 25 head of horses? I don't really know. Uh, wish I had the answer to why that happened. Uh, so we went out and we started casting around looking for him. And I was certain that I knew where he had gone and I didn't find him. Uh, so we split up the group and the, the people that could um, take a little more adventurous trail went one way. That was a very small group, but I sent them looking for him. That was mostly employees and wranglers and whatnot. And then I took the clinic group and rode the long way home and we checked over ridges and draws and whatnot and watched all the way home, just certain that one group would find him or that he would be home when we got there. And he wasn't. So the next day I sent out everybody that worked for me uh, to look for him. And I taught the clinic uh, without help that day and uh, sent everybody out looking for him and come that evening, they had not found him. And so everybody was getting pretty concerned. He had a saddle on, he had saddlebags, no bridle or anything on his head, but, uh, but a saddle and saddlebags on him. 
And so everybody was getting kind of concerned. So I told uh, Donald Archer, who's one of my master certified trainers, I asked him if he would go with me the next morning. And I told Larry, I will go find your horse before the clinic starts tomorrow. And um, he was worried as he should be. And I told him, don't worry about it. I, I have a knack for finding last livestock. I'll go find him. And so we did. Uh, we virtually rode right to him. It really wasn't. Uh, we checked We checked the lunch spot one time early. We left the barn before daylight. And we got to the lunch spot. And I, we just checked there just to make sure he wasn't there. And then I told Donald, well, everybody's checked where he is. We got to check where he's not. We got we to gotta go someplace new. And so we literally rode a straight line almost right to him. And he would had run down on the ledge of a canyon and he had jumped off of a small ledge and he was down and it wasn't a, it wasn't a straight cliff, but it was a very steep kind of slide rock. And he was down in a bowl about the size of a round pen and no water and he couldn't get out of there. So the saddlebags had quite a bit of water and Gatorade in them. And so uh, I didn't have any way to water him, but I mean, every, every good uh, Western movie waters their horse out of their hat. So I did. And uh, it's the first time in my life I've ever done it, but it actually worked. I just took the bottle of water and filled my hat and got him to drink as much as he could. And then we went to jumping back up off of that ledge and we tried twice and it didn't work. And so this is where I really, really got an amazing lesson in hearing God's voice. And as a Christian, recognizing the voice of God. Uh, so after two failed attempts and nothing was damaged, no, nobody was hurt. Um, we took the, the rock kind of had a crevice in it. And so we took some square rocks and shoved them in there and created steps. And then I took the saddle off and I shoved it down in the crevice. And so we kind of created a set of stairs for the horse to get up and this, this slide rock was, you know, five and a half or six feet high on a, on a pretty steep angle. And so <clears throat> we got everything set up. And then I looked at Donald and I said, Donald, let's stop and pray about this before we do anything else. And so we stopped and we prayed. And when we were done praying, I stood up and I walked over to the horse. And as I did, I walked past this rock that stuck up out of the ground about eight inches and it was shaped kind of like a volcano. The top of it was about the size of a pop can. And as clear as if you were saying it to me, when I went by that rock, I heard a voice say, Ken, if you try this again, you're going to break your leg on that rock. And I stopped and I looked at it and I thought, wow, my subconscious is really nervous. But that's all that I thought. I did not take a moment to recognize the voice of God. And so I thought, you know what? I need to be careful of that rock. That's, I'm glad I noticed that. I need to be careful of that rock. And so we had a long lead rope on the horse. We'd combined a couple of lead ropes and made a long lead rope so that Donald could stand on top and direct him. And then I motivated him from behind. And so uh, what I did is I took my belt off and I just swung it, never actually con contacted him with it just swung it and that was enough and he jumped right up those stairs and he got up on top and he kind of turned to his right and he was kind of broadside 
and everybody relaxed. And he had stood up there, you know, for 10 or 15 seconds. Uh, I asked Donald about that. And he said he thought at least 15 seconds he stood there. And then he turned his head to the right just a little bit. And when he did, his back foot slipped and he panicked and threw himself over backwards. And he came off of that ledge and he landed and barrel rolled over the top of me. And he, he knocked me down. And when I went down, my leg went over top of that rock. And then he rolled over top of my leg and just shattered my leg uh, three inches above my ankle. He broke the small bone right in the ankle. He broke the big bone. He dislocated the ankle and then broke my foot uh, lengthways from the ankle down towards the toes. And so uh, he was rolling up over my head and somehow by the grace of God and with his help, I caught him and shoved him back. And that's one of the things I asked Donald about later. I said, you know, I, I have this memory of doing this. Is that really what happened? And he said, well, Ken, I can't say how it happened because I, I couldn't see. But he said, I saw the horse rolling over you. And then he said, all of a sudden he stopped and he came back. Well, I know there's no way that I personally pushed a thousand pound horse off of me. So I know that was, you know, a miracle from God that that horse did not roll over my head and do a lot worse damage. Um, and so we got the horse up and Donald came to me and he said, how bad is it? And I said, it shattered. Uh, I mean, I'm still laying on the ground and he's, he said, are you sure? I said, no, I, I know. I, I don't have to look at it. I know. Uh, what I didn't know at the time was it was a compound fracture. And um, he said, well, let's pull your pant leg up and look at it. I said, absolutely not. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to see it. Uh, I had him cut my boot off and then take my cell phone. And he had to go a little ways to get service. And he was going to call for help. And I told him, I'm going to crawl up those stairs and get out of this hole because I've been uh, around emergency medical people my whole life. And sometimes things happen and I didn't want somebody to drop me on a backboard coming out of that hole. So I, I crawled up out of it and he came back. He said, we've got some bad news. Your phone battery's dead. And uh, so about 60 or 70 feet from where I was, there was a flat rock. And I told him, uh, get my saddle horse and lead him up there. And uh, I'll crawl to that rock and get on him. And so I did. And uh, it was three miles down to where they could get me a pickup and get me out of there. And it took, uh, it only took me three hours to get to the ER. In the coronavirus infected world that we live in, or the COVID infected world that we live in, um, it took them five hours to find a hospital that would take me for the surgery. Uh, and then it took another five hours to get to that hospital. So. The injury happened at 8.45 in the morning, and I finally got admitted to a, a room by 11.45 that night. And so there was, there was many more miracles that happened. The next morning, they took me into surgery. They told me before the surgery, they said, we're probably not going to be able to do surgery because there's too much swelling. And so when I came out of that surgery, there was some real serious issues. Um, I responded very adversely to the uh, anesthetics. And my heart uh, continued to work, but my breathing quit several times on them and my breathing flatlined several times. And my heart never stopped. Um, and so when they finally got me to come out, they couldn't give me any painkiller or anything because they were scared of the effect it would have on me. So when it was all said and done, uh, there was an immense amount of pain coming out of that. And they had screwed in 
a stabilizer frame because they couldn't actually fix my leg due to the, the swelling. And so uh, there was an immense amount of pain and, and hassle dealing with that. That was on Saturday morning. On Sunday night, the surgeon came in, the ER surgeon came in to see me. And he said, you've got an appointment with the orthopedic surgeon in the morning. Um, and he said, all they're going to do is set a surgery date. And I said, doc, what's the chance of getting this frame off tomorrow and doing the surgery? He said, not one in a million. It's not going to happen. And um, he said, you're going to wear that frame for at least 10 days, maybe as much as a month. And so the next morning, uh, that evening, uh, we all prayed and we asked everybody on Facebook to pray. And the next morning, Dr. Kyle Librand walked in and uh, she's an amazing surgeon. And she unwrapped my foot and she took one look at it and she said, well, Mr. McNabb, I imagine that you would like uh, me to operate on this today. And I said, Dr. Librand, if it's at all possible, I'm for it. She said, well, we're going to do it. And right then the ER uh, surgeon walked in and she told him, we're getting set to operate on this. And he said, well, I told him it was never going to happen and that it couldn't happen. And she said, well, I understand why you said that, but it's good to go now and we're going to do it. And so that was just another of the many, many miracles. Uh, but one of the, the, the biggest lesson that I think I've walked away from this whole thing with was that moment during the accident, right before the accident, we stopped and prayed. And I think as Christians, we do this all the time. We stop and we pray without really expecting to hear God's voice. If you ask people, when was the last time you heard God talk to you? My partner, Deemer Truth, says it this way all the time. He says, you know, I'm not very good at seeing God in the windshield, but I'm really good at seeing him in the rearview mirror. I can see what God's done in my life, but I don't necessarily see what is about to happen. And I think Christians as a whole, we struggle with that. We think that Christ uh, was crucified 2,000 years ago and that nobody's really had much of a conversation with him as far as to hear his voice since Paul... Uh, on the road to, uh, shoot, I forget what road he was on when he got, but anyways, you know what I'm talking about, Paul's yes. conversion um, at that point. And so for me, I think that was amazing for me to realize how many other times in my life have I prayed, God's answered, and I blew it off as, oh, well, that wasn't the voice of God. Uh, and I think that's the biggest lesson I've walked away from this thing with. You know, I tell everybody I didn't get hurt because I was riding. I didn't get hurt on one of my horses. It was a fluke accident. Fortunately, uh, with the exception of some, uh, some damage to his knee, to the, to the hide and tissue around his knee, uh, the horse came out of it. They had to haul feed and water to him for a few days, and then they drugged him and, and used a winch and lifted him out of there, and he came out of it fine, uh, much better than I did. But, um, you know, when it's all said and done, I value the experience for the lesson that I learned. Outstanding. Outstanding. Don't forget to check out and become a member of our Facebook group, Horse Sense 101. Keep in contact with me on Instagram at Joe underscore Horse Sense 101. And go to our webpage, www.horse-sense101.com. While you are there, sign up for our newsletter for information about upcoming shows, events, and information on the release of You and Your Heart Horse. And if you have a chance, 
I would appreciate it if you would give us a review on Podchaser. Um, are are you still are you still doing the the television program on 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 TV? Do they are you still filming that or is that done? So uh, RFD TV and I are in negotiations. They are still airing reruns um, frequently. Uh, weekly they still run reruns we have not filmed anything new yet this year and we are negotiating our future contract uh, i've been on rfd tv for over 16 years almost 17 years and i've enjoyed it they've been amazing to me and it's been an amazing chance to be right in people's living rooms with them and and you know help them with their horses at home i've loved every second of it but you know things have changed a little bit and so uh, we're negotiating. RFD considers uh, that very, very valuable real estate. And, you know, what a lot of people don't realize is that RFD is the one um, television network that does not pay its providers, but rather the providers pay them. So, you know, if, if you work with, uh, say, INSP, they come out and they buy programming from a production company. Uh, that's not the way that, uh, and then they sell INSP then sells the airtime, the commercial time inside the programming. And that's how they make their money. Uh, RFD does it exactly the opposite. They sell the airtime to the production company and then give you some of the airtime in hopes of making back some of your money uh, that way. So, it's a little bit of a different setup and I've, uh, I've kind of come to a spot where um, we've negotiated or we are negotiating for a different contract from them. And I don't know how those negotiations are actually turning out. Uh, it's slow and I'm, uh, I'm not sure where we're at on that. So I, I can't give you a really good answer, but I can say that uh, the Cowboy Channel is still rerunning uh, shows that we've been doing for the last 16 years every week. Excellent. Yeah, we 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 watch we watch your stuff every week. Um, we're we're big fans of of uh, both you, Chris Cox, and Craig Cameron. Um, we, we you know all of all of all of the Western community appreciates tremendously because we I, I I suspected that it was not something that you do to get rich. It it's it's right. more of a way for you to give back. Um, yeah, that's certainly what Chris has said. <clears throat> yeah, that that's definitely the truth. It's not it, it does not increase your income directly. I mean, yes, it increases your impact and that, you know, uh, that certainly brings you awareness to more people. But as far as does it increase your income? No, it, it doesn't. Well, along that line, um, talk to talk to us, if you would, a little bit about your your horsemanship program and and the programs that you offer in clinics and, and, and at your ranch there in Wyoming? Sure. So, um, you know, I started doing what we call a three-week apprentice program in 1996. Uh, so 25 years ago uh, right now, uh, or actually almost 26 years ago right now, uh, we ran our first three-week apprentice program in January of 96. And... Um, we have yeah. continued to build since that time. Prior to that, I did some demos at different expos and whatnot, smaller stuff uh, and clinics. Um, over the time, 
of, of doing both three-day clinics and then the three-week apprentice program, I had a lot of students start coming to me and saying, we want more. We want more of a program. So in, uh, I want to say in about 2007, we launched our uh, certification program. And that program is really 11 weeks um, to certification. It's tested. Most programs aren't. Uh, the, three, the first three-week program, uh, we call the apprentice program, and anybody can attend it, and it's not tested at all. And you come and you ride and you learn, um, but it doesn't have to be tested. It's not a pass or fail program. However, if while you're there, you excel, then you, know, you came into, say, a much higher level of horsemanship, and you're really excelling, I will offer you at no additional cost the opportunity to test for your journeyman level. And if you can pass the journeyman level, then that takes out three weeks out of the 11 weeks. Um, so, but, but in a standard method, in a standard version, I guess the way to say it, we have the three-week apprentice program followed six months later, at least six months later. It can be longer. We don't really care how long it takes you. By the journeyman program, which is te- has both a written, uh, which is a theory test, Uh, and then it has a practical application test. And um, unfortunately, I do have people not pass it. So what we did is I don't ever want to take money under false pretense. So we set it up from the very beginning. If you don't pass, you have two more times to take that test. And to tell you the honest truth, if you come for the journeyman level and nearing the end of the three-week program, you don't look like you're going to pass, I'll come to you and say, don't test then you have three more times to test. Just go home, don't test this week. But we give you a total of three times to test. You can send the test in by video uh, or you can meet me on the road somewhere and test again. And um, following, the, following the journeyman level, we move to the master level. And the master certified trainer level is tested. Uh, it, it is a practical application test only. And it is all... Uh, high-end performance and body control maneuvers, not because I live my life in a performance arena, but because I believe every ranch horse slash trail horse ought to be trained to be shown so that the control is there. Uh, Because who really needs a great stop, the reining trainer or the guy out riding through the rocks? The guy out riding through the rocks and the trees needs a great stop. So I want that control there. Uh, Once those three three three-week programs are done, then what makes it an 11 week program is before you can obtain your certification, you have to commit to two weeks of travel and teaching with me on the road. That doesn't cost you anything extra. It simply costs you your, your expenses and you show up and use your time and you teach in the clinics because I want to see you apply this material to people before I say, yes, you're certified. Um, that being the case, uh, they then are required to come back every couple of years and teach to maintain their certification. So that takes that program all the way through to creating really great trainers who have built a lot of really great businesses. What I do on the road in the three-day clinics are, you know, I, I tell people all the time, they're like a horse obedience class. And I try to meet people where they are and 
and take everybody and their horsemanship goals to the next level. I, I don't really do a clinic where everybody does the same thing because not everybody there is at the same level of horsemanship. Some people are beginners and some people have been doing it all their lives. And so I, I try to match it each person and they ride, you know, everybody rides as a group, but you might be working on five different exercises inside that group at any given time. Uh, so, and then the, the newest program, which is actually the program we are involved in when I broke my leg, uh, the newest program that I'm really excited about is our Trail Rider University. And uh, the Trail Rider University is hosted at the Powderhorn Ranch, uh, northwest or southwest rather, out of Douglas. Uh, it's my partner, Deemer True's place. And what we do there is we spend half the day in the arena uh, working on horsemanship and then half a day out on the trail working on horsemanship. And then one day of the week, we take a full day trail ride with lunch out on the trail. That has been a really great program and has helped a lot of people who are uh, really avid riders who really want to get out and trail ride more, but don't have the confidence to get out there and, and do it on their own. And that's helped them and shown them how to go get it done. So those are kind of the, the programs we're offering. Years ago, I had a lady tell me, if you really want to make a lot of money, she's a consultant. She said, if you really want to make a lot of money, Ken, you have to make everybody learn your method. Um, the, the problem I have with that is I didn't invent any of this. This stuff right. has been around since God created horses. So I don't make anybody learn my method. I show them how I do things and, and teach them how I do things. But if you show up at a, at one of my clinics and your groundwork is just perfect and it's groundwork that you learned from Chris Cox, I'm not going to make you redo all the groundwork. Chris's groundwork is still great groundwork. Is it slightly different from mine? A little bit. Sure. But I'm not going to, it's groundwork. You've established a relationship of leadership with your horse. That's the goal. So that's sort of the approach I take to everything I do. Um, we agree on so much, Ken. It's, it's scary. Um, this, this is going to be my, my favorite part of the interview. I'm a, I'm a huge, a huge fan of the competition road to the horse. Um, if you would speak to our audience a little bit about, about your experience competing there, about the, the successes that you've had there and, and what that competition means to you and what it should mean to all of us that are fans. Wow. That's such a, um, <laughs> that's such a broad topic, uh, that I could talk for hours, uh, road to the horse. I, I first became aware of road to the horse back in like 2002 or three, uh, when the very first competition held in Fort Worth was called in a whisper and Josh Lyons won it. And I started then practicing Colts, changing my Colts starting and practicing so that I would be able to get, uh, in, to an area where I was competitive in 2008, I was invited, uh, to road to the horse. And, um, my Friday night was not great. And Chris Cox won that year. You can't give, uh, any competitor, but particularly Chris Cox, a head start and hope to catch up later. And my Friday night just wasn't really good. And, uh, the horse was rough. He was bad to strike, bad to bite. Maybe I didn't help that maybe as much as I should have Friday night. We came back on Saturday, had a great day. Uh, and I've always been able to predict that. I've always been able to tell you what my tomorrow would be with a horse because I know where I'm going. But in 2008, I know that my Friday night wasn't real great, but I had a great time in general. Um, and it, it was a great experience. 
Then in 2010, they had me back again. And um, it was a very, very close competition. Craig Cameron drew a really great horse and he won it. Um, ironically, because it came back to bite me again this year. Uh, ironically, uh, my horse who I called Jerry at that time and I bought him as well. Um, failed to cross the tarp. He got his front feet on it, but failed to cross the tarp. And I left a hole there that um, Craig was able to crawl through and, and cinch the win. This year, um, in 2008, I really coined the phrase, no regrets horsemanship. Uh, I, I had a group of uh, very godly men there and we went out back and we prayed before the event started. Uh, and I told them, no matter what we do in the booth, in the, in the stands, in the arena, when we leave here this weekend, I don't want any regrets. And that's really back to what we talked about earlier. I just, I, I don't want regrets. So <clears throat> 2008 and 2010, I really didn't feel like I had any regrets, but I could see the mistakes that I made. Um, going into this year, 2021, I was determined not to make those mistakes. And um, so, again, one of the mistakes that I felt I made, particularly in 2010, was not really appropriately hearing the voice of God. And so I was very, very uh, focused on that this year as I, as I went into the competition. And you asked me what the competition means to me. And I, you know, I'm kind of going to take a break from where I'm going to hit that for a minute. We've spent our lives as horsemanship instructors um, telling people that what we do works. And so Road to the Horse gives us a chance to prove that. It gives us a chance to go before an audience and show them what we're doing. And I'm so proud of what Western Horseman has done. There have been huge changes. Uh, you know, Road to the Horse used to be a 2D Bland production, uh, Stephen and 2D Bland originally production, and then a 2D Bland production after Stephen passed. Um, Western Horseman purchased it a couple of years ago. I am really proud of what Western Horseman has done with Road to the Horse. I, uh, I think it's amazing, some amazing changes. I know that uh, COVID made us uh, go to Fort Worth this year. I, that was the coolest thing in the world for me. I know it'll be, uh, or I assume it'll be back in Lexington in 22. Uh, for me, being in Fort Worth was amazing. It's Cowtown, USA. It was just a really neat environment. But one of the things that I appreciate about Road to the Horse is they really focused on making it family entertainment, keeping it family entertainment, and they really promoted a strong sense of faith and patriotism in everything that they did. And I really valued that in, in their choice of competitors, even, um, you know, they chose people who have strong family values, strong patriotism, uh, and in most cases, strong faith backgrounds. And so uh, that, that was really a neat thing for us. And I think uh, all the way around, it's a, it's an amazing competition walking in this year. Um, I was determined not to make some of the mistakes I'd made before. Uh, and some of those mistakes were early on in the, in the choosing of the horses. And so I had my two sons and then uh, their good buddy, Jack Steed, who works for me on and off. Uh, the three of them were my ground crew. My wife was my pen wrangler. And so the five of us went through horses. And I really feel like we studied those horses in the videos 
uh, and knew them all very well. And I feel like when we got there, there were no surprises. Um, we had narrowed it down uh, to number uh, six, number nine, and maybe number three. I, I forget now the numbers, but the, the horses were uh, Dandy, the horse that I picked, Kool-Aid, the horse that uh, uh, Cole Cameron picked, and then the Sorrel horse that Wade Black picked. And uh, those were my three choices. So that if I, you know, didn't get to choose first or second, that out of the three choices, I would still be okay. I got to choose first uh, and I walked out in that pen. And if you go back and you watch the video, you'll see me playing with my hat. I took my hat off and I'm playing with it because I, I think that we're not to make a spectacle of our faith and a spectacle of prayer, but I really wanted to pray as I walked out there for God's guidance and direction. And so I took my hat off and just tried to appear like I was playing with it, but I was actually deep in prayer. And those three horses trotted out of the Remuda broadside and they turned almost in unison and faced me straight on. And I stopped there and uh, I just turned my back on them and prayed for a moment. And when I turned back around, uh, the other two had drifted off and Dandy was still standing there. And so I chose Dandy. And I can tell you right now, uh, I know in my heart, I chose the exact right horse. And so in the competition, one of the things I tell people, because people will say to me, oh, gee, you did such a good job. We thought, here's the funny thing about competition. You never get to be the competitor and the judge both, right? So you go to a competition, it's judged, and that's perfectly acceptable. And it's not always judged by people that you agree with their opinions. Uh, Dandy and I had a really great run. Uh, when we went in the pen, originally, he was very, very difficult to touch uh, his, his left hip. Uh, I had to work really hard to be able to put a saddle pad on his left hip. He just had a struggle there. Uh, he struggled moving to the left. He, just, he was just sticky for whatever reason. It doesn't really matter what reason. He was sticky to the left and was nervous on that left hip. And we worked really hard on that. Um, it's a sort of a a major sense of pride to me that on Sunday in the finals, uh, there was six horses ridden in that finals, three in the, in the main competitor and three in the, in the wild card of the six horses out of that same group of horses. Dandy was the only one that didn't have to be roped. Uh, Dandy wasn't roped on the second day either. Um, I, I don't want to lie about that. I can't remember if I roped him on the second day. I know I roped him on the first day. I don't think I roped him the second day, but I know for a fact Go ahead. I'm pretty sure you didn't. I'm pretty sure you didn't. Yeah, um, I don't think I wrote yeah, you I, on the second day. I, I, we, I was there. And, <clears throat> no, and we, I, we, I really personally, I cheered. I cheered about that. I thought that was one of the highlights of the whole deal. Yeah, I just, to me, it's about building relationships. And that's what we did. And if you go back and you watch the, the um, social media pieces that Western Horseman did, Danny would meet us out back and she would interview us. And each day I would tell her, session went great here's what's going to happen tomorrow and that's exactly what would happen the next day uh because i knew we were just on a really great strong role i knew we were building a really great relationship and and i was super proud of that i worked really hard uh to keep my horses from bucking i you know i don't like to see a horse buck i know sometimes they're going to uh i, I don't take anything away from that sometimes they're going to but i work really hard to keep them from bucking and I really believe that there are only two reasons why any colt bucks. And one is that they're in pain and the other is that they're scared. And so 
pain sometimes we have no control over. Sometimes we're not aware of pain. Uh, but I try really hard not to ever scare them so that they don't have to go through that experience. And yet still build enough uh, pressure for them to learn to accept pressure and, and accept a lot of pressure and, and to temper the steel to a point where it's uh, a strong uh, steel. So we had a really good run. I really enjoyed it. He went out in the finals and he did absolutely everything. Um, so one of the things that I hate to, I hate to admit this to people, it cost me a win over uh, Martin Black up in Canada once. Um, I write notes the night before. I plan each moment of the day, how many minutes I will do each thing. And so Martin and I were talking once and I told him I did that. I make a list. And then the next day uh, he pulled his list out of his pocket, told the audience, I told, gave him the idea and then smoked me in the finals and, and won. So I, I felt like I kind of should have kept my own advice to myself, but I, I still think it's an important part of horsemanship. So I tell people. Uh, and so Saturday night, my wife and I uh, sat down and talked about it a little bit. And then she actually woke me up at 2 a.m. Sunday morning and we got up at 2 a.m. and we went through each minute all the way through of what would happen. So when I walked into that pen, you know, I caught Dandy with very little effort and saddled him and I stepped on his back at seven minutes. Rode him around the pen. The judges had asked us not to leave the pen too early uh, because they didn't want it to look bad if somebody needed to use the pen for the whole 20 minutes. So they said, if any of you finish, you know, when you don't need the pen, please don't leave too early. So I left the pen. Uh, they said anywhere after 15 minutes is fine. I left the pen a little over 16 minutes. I rode over. I opened the gate horseback, rode out, closed the gate, and started my ride around. And I absolutely loved him. Dandy was, he was broke. He was ready to go. <clears throat> so the only the only bobbles we had we we hesitated at the tarp and i spent a lot of time there i had time to kill i wasn't worried about it um so you know i, I went to the tarp and he didn't want to cross it and we worked and worked and it didn't happen and so eventually we moved on and then the mystery bridge at the end we crossed it horizontally but not lengthways um and so those two, those two spots, uh, you know, weren't great. Uh, but otherwise, he was absolutely faultless. And when I walked out of that arena that night, not being awarded the win, I was completely content to know that you don't always get to be the competitor and the judge both. And there's nobody in the world that I would have more admiration for as a person than Wade Black. And so for them to award Wade the win, um, God knew who both of us were and where we were in there that day. And so I'm super proud of Wade and all that Wade has done and continues to do. So when I walked out of there that day, I was able to know uh, my horse and I did a fantastic job. I was super happy with what we did. I felt like it was different than 2008 and 2009 where I could pinpoint how I lost um, in 2008 and 2009. In this one, I really didn't step back and say, well, here's how I lost. Uh, yes, I know we didn't cross the tarp and the bridge perfect, but absolutely no single other horse did every element perfect. So 
So that wasn't like, you know, in 2010, Craig's horse did everything faultlessly and mine didn't. You could point that out. And this one, I really believed it came down to a, a preference of the way judges prefer to see things. And that's competition. It doesn't matter if you're going to the cutting futurity, the reigning futurity, the AQHA world, the Congress. It doesn't matter where you're going. You have judges who prefer the way something looks over something else. And that's a judged event. So I was able to walk out of it feeling really good about where my horse was, where my horsemanship was, uh, you know, I felt like the competition really allowed each of us to really um, magnify what we do. You know, there was a little bit of scuffle between um, Craig and the announcers. You know, there was some times when the announcers got booed for picking on Craig's age. But even that, I felt like they were actually trying to honor Craig without overdoing it. And I thought the audience got some of that wrong. So when I was all said and done and sitting back looking at it, I just thought um, it was an amazing opportunity. I didn't agree with the judges, but they don't need me to agree with them. That's just the way that goes. Uh, So when it was all said and done, you know, the way I judge it, uh, a gentleman called me the other day that they've asked to compete and he wanted my opinion. And I said, you know what, here's the deal. When it's all said and done, the way I judge something is ask myself, would I do it again? In a heartbeat, in a heartbeat, I'd do it again. It's such a great competition, such a great chance to get to meet fans in person and sit and talk with them. And every restaurant you walk into, there's people sitting at tables who were there watching all day and everybody just visits and laughs and jokes and so a sort of sort of like a thanksgiving holiday all about horsemanship it was a ton of fun um one of the one of the things that i'd like to i'd like first of all i want to brag a little bit i before the whole competition started um i had a a, a visit a, a personal visit with dandy out back in the corral about all oh, 20 minutes after he got there and in our conversation, he whispered in my ear that he was destined for greatness. And I could see that yeah. as plain as day. Talk to us just a little bit about how Dandy's doing today. Well, Dandy's on an extended vacation right now. <laughs> From the moment I broke my leg, he went on vacation. Uh, so he's doing well. He's grown. He's filled out. He looks great. Um Training came to an abrupt halt uh, August 27th, and it had been a little bit scattered throughout there. But if you walk into the pen with him today, he is exactly the same disposition, personality plus uh, horse. There's there's a little bit, there's enough fire in the boiler to make a great horse. But there is a disposition the people that know me well, I have a black stud horse that I've ridden for the last 17. Well, I guess not 17 years. I've ridden him for 15 years. Uh, I've owned him for 17 years. I call him Stormy. Dandy is very much like Stormy. He has a personality where he wants to please you. He, he wants to know that what he did was right and that you liked what he did. Uh, and I value that in a horse. I, I tell my kids, I tell my students, I tell my sons, my nephew, anybody that will listen. After your relationship with God, the most important character trait that you can personally have is coachability. If you are not teachable, 
then nobody anywhere can ever help you with anything. So even you will even struggle with your relationship with God if you are not teachable because he has to chastise those he loves. So being teachable is one of the most important character traits you can have. And I see that in Dandy. He is so teachable. He is an open book waiting for you to write on the pages of that book. And so I've been very um, jealous of him and not, you know, I've not shared him with the family, but I actually just spoke to my son, Kurt, yesterday and said, Kurt, I need you to start riding Dandy for me. We're, We're too far behind. I thought I'd be riding by now and I am riding by now. I actually, I've been riding, but my right foot simply does not work the way I need it to yet. I've got a lot more therapy to do there. And so I went to Kurt and said, I want you to start riding Dandy. Uh, Kurt is a great horseman. Um, I've just been very jealous of Dandy because I, I admire him so much that I want to be the only one who writes on that book for a while. Uh, but at this point, um, I'm going to have Kurt start writing on the pages of that book a little bit uh, because he'll do much the same thing that I would do. So that's where he's at. And several people have asked me, is he ever going to show up in our sale? I'm not at this point in time going to say no, but I'm going to say highly unlikely. Uh, I'm going to say I have a fantastic gelding that's 12 years old, Devin. Uh, I love Devin. He's an amazing horse, Um, but he's 12. I'm going to say that Dandy is set to replace Devin and Stormy as my personal horse. Um, He's a three-year-old. I've got lots of years, uh, Lord willing, to ride him and enjoy him. And I really want to get him going and get him shown in the ranch versatility and um, have some fun with him along those lines. Because he's just, I love the way he's bred. I love the way he moves. And one of the upshots of Road to the Horse for me this year, one of the really neat things for me, Like every other kid, I've grown up, and I'm a long ways from a kid now, but I grew up, you know, reading things about the King Ranch and the Four Sixes. And you just, those those are sort of iconic ranches you grew up learning about. And then as I became more aware in the horse industry, I began to hear about and learn about Dr. Blodgett. And uh, to meet Dr. Blodgett this year, what an absolute honor and a neat neat man when we went to the ranch to buy the horses what a neat experience and dr blodge is a very busy man he's a man that's got a lot going on and uh, about a month after i broke my leg or somewhere in there my phone rang one day and it was dr blodge just calling to check on me uh what an honor to have this man who has so many bigger fish to fry call just to make sure that I was doing okay. Uh, And I asked him, I said, I thought maybe you called to check on the Colts. Oh, he said, I always like to know how my Colts are doing, but no, I called to see how you were doing. Uh, What an honor that was. And that's been just one of the parts of this whole thing that's been amazing. And for you to say that uh, Dandy whispered in your ear, he was destined for greatness. I agree a hundred percent. He just he really is. And uh, I congratulate you for seeing that well ahead of time because he just really is a spectacular individual. Yeah, I, I teased Wade pretty hard about not picking that horse. I, I, thought, I thought he made a huge error because Dan, Dandy reached out to him too. And I, I thought, yeah. you know, I, I, I like kind of like the cult that, that he's got, but, but I, I for 
from my from my taste in horses that that was my favorite um, yeah and and to be honest to give wade you know to give wade some credit his horse was honestly right there the only reason i i considered his horse over mine was because he was a sorrel not a red roan and if you study which i've done a bunch if you study the NCHA Futurity, the NRCHA Futurity, the NRHA Futurity, Road to the Horse, the NFR, world champion horses tend to be sorrels. Uh, and so I, I had, in my mind, that's the only difference between them. And I hesitated, but in the end, I chose Dandy and I couldn't be happier. Yeah, M Metallic Cat might have a few things to say about that whole no roan <laughs> deal, but, but you, does, you, are, you are correct. Yeah, he does. And he's he's changed it dramatically. And that's why, you know, Dandy being a, a Betty's a cat, uh, that absolutely, you know, that if Dandy wasn't a Betty's a cat, I wouldn't have chosen. If if Dandy would have had any other bloodline there, like say he would have been a hard time or one of those other horses and that wrong color, I wouldn't have chosen. Uh, but because he's a Betty's a cat. I knew basically you're looking at a pretty sorrel hided horse. You have <laughs> yep. the same, you have the same mentality, but he's pretty. So, um, well, speak, you, you mentioned a little bit about, uh, and we'll, we'll end it on this note. Cause I know you're a busy man. You got, you got a doctor to see, but I, I know your, your ranch production sale is something that's nationally known and, and very, very special. Um, what have you got? And I know, I noticed too, that you've got a horse in, the uh, select sale, the online sale at uh, uh, Jan Parker sale in Billings. Um, tell us about that horse a little bit and we'll, we'll get the word out on him so we can get you big money for him and talk about your upcoming sale. What, what you do to prepare horses for your sale and, and what, what makes you select your horses for your sale? Okay. So um, I'll, I'll hit on, I'll hit on chance first because he's kind of the whole subject. Um, Chance is a really, really neat horse, and he is exactly what I look for in all of our horses. I tell people all the time, when I buy a horse, the three most important things to me are disposition, disposition, disposition. Same things we were talking about in Dandy. I want teachability. I want that horse to be trainable. Um, I look for bloodlines, certainly. There's bloodlines I like better than others. I look for confirmation, of course, but the most important thing is that disposition. And Chance has it. He is absolutely the most loving, kind character in the world. Uh, we've, and, and what do we do to prepare him for the, for the customer? Uh, we take our horses and we ride them everywhere. Now, for our sale, we ride them for a year. We guarantee we have them for a year and we ride them for or the best part of a year. Sometimes it's 11 months. Uh, Chance we've had for six months. And... Um, Jan called and asked us if we would put a horse in that sale. And I chose to put Chance there because he's absolutely the most ready to go there of any horse that we have. Uh, I bought Chance from a very, very good friend of mine who owned him for a year before I got him. So I've known the horse. He has a great history. He's had a competitive history. He's sound as a dollar. Uh, we ride him. We do the groundwork with him. We make sure there are no holes in him. But a big thing that we do with our horses is we take them out in the world. So 
I told you I've been riding, but I only ride really, really gentle horses. Chance is one of the horses I've been riding. And I took Chance the other day. They hauled me uh, 15 miles from home, kicked me out of the trailer by myself uh, with my walking cast on. And I got on Chance and rode that horse all day long, gathered up a group of cattle that had got out on us way out in the desert. Uh, brought him back. He slid down steep banks. He crossed creeks. He went through ditches. He went up shale, loose shale hillsides. He's been everywhere and done everything that anybody might someday do with him. And so one of the stories I like to tell, I was riding with a guy that was foreman of the ranch I was riding on. Uh, Mid-50s, ranched and cowboyed his whole life. And so we were looking for a lost bull. And we were on top of a hill and, and we looked down in the valley and there was some brush and whatnot. And I said, you know, that might be a good place for a bull to hide out. And he said, well, let's ride down there and look. And I said, all right. And I started to ride forward. And he said, that's not the trail. I said, where's the trail? Said, you have to go all the way back and around. I said, let's just go this way. And we just slid down this really steep hill. And about halfway down, I heard him yell, McNabb, elk don't even walk here. And I told him, well, they will now. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to ride where I want to go. And so when I tell people our horses, you'll never take a horse someplace. We haven't already shown him something worse. And, and that's a big part of what we do. I want my customers to have confidence that they're going to be safe. I want them to know when they get on our horse, something dumb could happen. A truck could hit them. I, I, I can't guarantee then nothing bad will ever happen. But I can guarantee that horse has already been in worse places than they're going to take him. So that's a big part of what we do. We use them on the ranch every day. And I believe that helps them learn to control their own emotions, to control their feet. And that's another big thing, thing that we teach is we teach all our horses to learn to control their own emotions. So Chance has been through all of that and would go on to our sale in fact you know if he doesn't uh if he doesn't bring the reserve at the sale um then he will go on to our sale <coughs> uh but i wanted to be involved in this event they asked me to it's right before christmas seemed like a fun thing to do and so um we went ahead and did it when we're out looking for horses though those are the things that we look for we want to find we want structural confirmation so we know this horse isn't going to come up lane later on uh, we don't want to have a problem with him later on. We want uh, eye appeal. Those things are important. Um, but the big thing we want is gentle. We want to know they're gentle and dependable. I want every horse to be a horse that you can put your grandkid on or you can go rope a bull on. Those are the, those are the two things I want them all to be able to do. And, of course, not all of them are perfect, but that's what I shoot for. Well, Ken, I, I, so, I, I so appreciate your time. And, and I, I know how busy you are. And a good friend of mine used to say that the secret to running a successful ranch is knowing what to neglect. And, and, and hopefully this has been worth neglecting something else for, and again, thank you so very much for your time, sir. Oh, you bet. Thank you so much. Wow. What a fun conversation with a very, very talented and gifted horseman, Mr. Ken McNabb. Thank you so much for joining me on Horse Sense 101 a podcast dedicated to helping you have that meaningful relationship with your horse you always wanted to have. Please tell your horsey friends about us and invite them to join us on our Facebook group, Horse Sense 101. And every Monday, 
for our podcast available at 6 a.m. Mountain Time. I'd like to thank you, my listeners, members, and again, today's guest, Mr. Ken McNabb. God bless you and have a wonderful week. The eagle soars above the pinion pines And we know these horses stand for something That is precious and more rare Than all the silver and the gold from them old mines So let them run Let them run Let them wild ponies run don't you brand them, don't you break them Don't you let the killers take a single one Let them run In a world where fences scar the earth from sun to rising sun, there's still a few proud places.